praise and worship you today. We praise your holy name. We praise this wonderful world that we live in. We praise the universe that you created out of nothing. We, we praise you for the seasons that change, for this changing between fall and into winter. We know that after winter, spring comes and summer, and the cycle continues. You remind us that life is like that. We don't stay steady. There are endings. There are changes. We appreciate the changes, the opportunities that come to us this morning. And the new, new leader of the, of the worship team and the music, oh, that was wonderful to have, have his hand leading us. Thank you, Lord. And we'll have a new pastor with, with a new perspective on your word Changes are good if we look at them as coming from you, giving us an opportunity. Lord, you are the unchangeable love. You are the constant in our life, always there before our birth, throughout our life. And when we die, you'll be there to welcome us and be an option. Thank you for all those blessings, Lord.
So I'm excited. I think that 
gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. Now if you haven't been here for the duration of the series, I'll just make one small note on the end of verse 23. The reason that the Apostle Paul needs to speak in terms of law is he's been using the law as an object lesson in chapter 5 of Galatians. So if that doesn't quite click for you, it seems out of context, zoom out a little bit this afternoon over lunch or when you get up from your nap or whatever, just take a look and read the whole chapter and I think that will begin to puzzle pieces together for you. But my assignment today is goodness, and if I can nerd on you just a little bit, in Greek, I know you're already rolling your eyes, I can't tell because I can't see you, but you probably are. In Greek, the word is agathosume, or you've heard the name agatha before, it's not a terribly popular name among newborns now, but it was in the 20s, and that word comes from goodness. Agathosune, according to Strong's Greek Concordance, which is sort of the Protestant standard when it comes to Greek interpretation, defines the word as intrinsic goodness, or we might say inner goodness, especially as a personal quality with stress on the kindness aspect of goodness as opposed to the righteousness aspect of goodness. So right out of the gate in our definition, there's a little bit of tension happening, right? There's a way to interpret goodness and think about being good or having the quality of goodness that's more about justification, lining yourself up with right and wrong, and then there's a, an element of it in the other end of the spectrum that deals more with kindness and generosity, selflessness, and the giving away of oneself. That's the road that we need to go down because that's the way that the Apostle Paul meant it. So what we're dealing with is the idea that when the Spirit of God, who is the third person of the Trinity, when he is rooted in your inner life, and the branches of his presence begin to make a difference, not just in theory, but quantifiably make a difference, then that's fruit. That's what fruit means. And this is the way that that fruit manifests itself. Now, for me, I think fruit is a helpful word picture, but you and I live in the intellectual West, whether we like it or not, where we may be tempted to read back into the scriptures the literal qualities of literal fruit trees. We might say, well, if Paul uses fruit as the example, then I just need to study fruit trees, and then I'll understand the Spirit of God. But not exactly. I'll give you an example. Um, where my wife and I lived in Kentucky, there was a massive it was a small town. We had no business having greenhouses like this at all. But if you've ever been to Kentucky, it's along the banks of the Ohio River. Anything will grow there. You can spit sunflower seeds out of your car and start a garden. It just happens. It's incredibly fertile. So it's kind of cheating to have a greenhouse there, I think. But these people did it and they made a lot of money. So attached to this greenhouse is uh, like a plant nursery. And they also had an organic cafe where they only served things that they picked from the greenhouse. And anyway, all of the middle-class millennials in the city that we grew up in would go there so that they could post about on Instagram. It was a very modern experience. Anyway, so we bought a house in Kentucky when we moved there. Thought we'd be there for a very long time. And all of a sudden, as homeowners, now it was our responsibility, and we're sort of an inside-outside family where my wife does inside, and I tend to do outside of where we live, so it kind of became my responsibility to care for the yard, to think about things like, what do you put in a flower bed? We, I have all this mulch that the person who lived here before me put into these ditches that they elevated and called a flower bed. I have to do something with it. I can't leave it empty or barren or my neighbors will attack me on the next door app. You guys know what that is. Or Facebook or whatever. So, you know, the kind of things that you have boring middle-aged fights about. This is what my wife and I entered into, right? Do we pick the gardenias? Or will it be the Chanticleer pear tree that we should go with? And I just debated back and forth and read reviews and anyway. So we go to the greenhouse. It's an easy way to solve it. You need a book to go to the bookstore. You need some sort of organic, non-GMO cherry blossom trees to go to the greenhouse. So that's what we did. 
itself, that trip was sort of a socioeconomic rite of passage for us. We're walking through aisles and aisles of plants and trees, many of which cost more than the car that we drove in to get to the greenhouse. And I learned something that day. I learned that there is a whole class of fruit trees that have the names of fruit in the name of the tree, yet never bear fruit. They're not supposed to. And this is not just a, a response or a fact that it's true for me because I'm bad with plants. I made sure that the trees aren't supposed to bear fruit. It wasn't just my bad. It was the way that they're designed. Okay. Like, for instance, Japanese cherry trees, no cherries. No cherries. Cleveland pear trees, no pears. Here's why I say that to you. Because we have categories in our heads for fruit trees that don't bear fruit, and that's positive. That's okay. We have the sense of an ornamental fruit tree being something that can still contribute something to your life, to your home, to your garden. But there is no such thing as an ornamental fruit tree when it comes to the Spirit of God in your life. I'll say it to you this way. There is no such thing as an ornamental disciple of Jesus. Yet I think in the same way that the West and modern thought and the pursuit of the scientific method have brought us to a place where we have non-fruit-bearing ornamental trees, those same symptoms in our inner person have brought us to a place where we have non-fruit-bearing ornamental Christians. That doesn't seem to be what the Apostle Paul is aiming for. If you belong to Jesus, according to Paul and Jesus both, we're going to get to Jesus in a minute, you will bear the fruit of the Spirit. You will. It will be borne out in your life. Which means that my job today is not to convince you that you should be good or you should have goodness, and I'm not going to try to do that. What I want to do is explore with you what the goodness of the Spirit is. And then I can persuade you to live as if you will bear it. Not that you have to design your days around trying to be good, but that you can build your days with the assumption that there will be a sense of spiritual goodness that God will insert into your life, that you will be able to rely upon, that you'll be able to bank on and bet on in your life. So, if we can, let's consider those two categories, trees that actually bear fruit and those that are ornamental. In one sense, if we apply that to the way that humans function, we have two categories of goodness that present themselves. There is, in the grand scheme of the Bible, among God's people, and of course today, among you and your peers, a sense of what we might call external goodness. There are morals in the world, is what I'm saying. There's right and there's wrong. There are laws in this country, whether you agree with them or not. There is a sense of an external standard. If you can align your life with that, then you have demonstrated goodness to other people. But often, that goodness doesn't happen change. All culture wants to do is tell you the things you need to do to get yourself in line with everybody. 
bear the fruit of the Spirit. We have to have our sense of self-preservation rewired. And more than anything, if we want to participate in our own inner renewal, to find ourselves linked up with the Spirit of God as He works in our lives, then we must be willing to look in a spiritual mirror. We can't take any steps toward progress until we've seen ourselves accurately. You may be familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous. In the interest of you maintaining your anonymity, I won't ask you to raise your hand if you know the 12 steps. But the first place you start, you want to make a change in that magnitude, is you say out loud that you have a problem. You name it. Jesus would often confront people in the interest of giving them an opportunity to name their problem. Whether it was love of love, love of self, fear of others, a desire to fit in, a religious aptitude that turned into some sense of reputation among the religious elite, Jesus' parables are giving us language to describe ourselves. Jesus' teaching often holds a mirror up in front of us. And unfortunately, in the Gospels, many people look into that mirror and they walk away. It's too harsh. We can't handle it. It hurts too badly. It's too personal to them. And my desire for you, because I believe that you are people who want to be filled with the Spirit, you're here studying the fruit of the Spirit because you would like to, in some future version of yourself, be a person from whom hang the fruit of the Spirit. A person whose life brings some sense of love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness into the lives of other people. Fifty years ago, we would call that evangelism. Today, we tend to call it relationship building, and you can use the term that you would like to, but it's representing and emulating Jesus by way of the Spirit of God, not just to improve another person's life, but to maybe pull one of those fruit off Jesus has gathered his 
Jesus has gathered his core team together. They've done some preview services. He's done some miracles in the community. That's sort of his social media campaign to get the word out about who he is. And Matthew 5 is the launch service. It's the moment where the community gathers under the teacher to hear his word and to be changed by interacting with God, with the divine. Jesus opens this first public sermon by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's verse 1 of chapter 5. Or if you'll allow me to maybe translate that same phrase in my own, own words, I believe that Jesus is saying, God the Father has made special provision for those who are totally and completely bankrupt in any spiritual sense. Now the reason I highlight this verse to you is because this is a wildly different story than the one being told by the religious people of Jesus' day. Jesus would go on in the verses that come before where we're going to pick it up in verse 43 to describe three more versions of personal bankruptcy as well as four positions of social humility. This is his opening to this big sermon that's sort of this public coming out of being God's prophet and being God himself. Pride. This is why Jesus opposes the Pharisees. 
So if goodness is not external righteousness, if there's something Jesus has in mind that's different and in some way exceeds the law-keeping of Pharisees, the most professional law-keepers in human history, then it must be very, very different. Internal goodness must be very, very different from external goodness. Otherwise, how could it ever surpass external goodness? Jesus answered that question as the six parts that I've mentioned to you now. And we don't have time to excavate all six today, so you can take a deep breath. We're going to be okay. We're just going to look at one. We're going to get to his conclusion with him. And I would ask that you consider, in light of the Apostle Paul's expectation, that being indwelled with the Spirit of God, there's goodness out in us. How does Jesus interact with what goodness practically, tangibly means? How does a good-filled person live in light of these verses? We'll begin reading in Matthew 5, verse 4.
two, even if you can't relieve your libido by way of sexual complex, you may still wind up intertwined with somebody in a way that severely complicates your relationship with them. Even without divorce, your spouse can become your primary adversary in life. Even if you resist the urge to manipulate someone else to sway your worldview, you may still conclude that they are your ideological opponent. And regardless of whether or not you retaliate when you are attacked, the one who attacked you may never be safe to be around again. So what do you do with those people? What do you do with enemies, awkward ex-partners, adversarial spouses, ideological opponents, those who have hurt you on purpose? What do you do? Well, Jesus says you've heard for your whole lives that what you do is you hate them. Of course you do, right? It's logical. It's just good sense. You treat them the way they treated you. You keep them far enough away that they can never do whatever they did to you again. You tolerate them at weddings and funerals, and you try not to think about them that much. Now, if you can't think of anybody like this in your life, just maybe think of it in this category. Who do you know who would not be sorry to find out that you died? You might go, huh, well, the world turns. That might be your enemy. Through the Spirit in you, ought to produce love. Goodness of the Spirit. I know, you know where we're headed. This is going to hurt. The fruit of the Spirit should generate favor from you toward those people. Now, here's what I'm not saying, church, because I'm sure in this room there's somebody who's been taken advantage of in their life. What I'm not saying is, is that Jesus requires a person who has been victimized to always give access to anybody who would take advantage of them in that way. No. One of the beautiful gifts of being in Christian community is we don't go alone anywhere that we go. And so the voices of others who are wise, the voices of others who have been brought into those situations will help advise us, will help counsel us, will help protect us. But the attitude of our heart cannot be one of hatred. A marriage counselor once told my wife and I that when you fail to forgive someone else, you keep yourself locked in a cage. It's like dumping acid on your own body and waiting for the other person to burn to death. That bitterness, that hatred, that inability to think of another person, it corrupts and rots and rusts us out from the inner person outward, such that when we encounter a person who's living in a way that is bitter, living in a way that is not good, those external actions reflect a very old, very potent state of the inner person. We start with hate in here, and then it works its way out. Jesus has a different perspective for those who are allegedly, supposedly, his. I believe many of us are. I believe by the power of the Spirit, He has saved us. Maybe we focused too much on that moment and not moved past it, but His words today, I think, will lead you into life. To call you back to the Greek word, agathosune, intrinsic goodness, especially as a personal quality, with stress on the kindly side of goodness, this is what we're talking about in regards to our enemies. The result of the indwelling of the Spirit of God in you will be a God-like response to the hardest So friends, if I'm being unclear, a litmus test for the strength of connection between your inner person and God's spirit is the tinsel strength of your love for those who may never love you. The love of Jesus is a bridge. That's what goodness functions as. It extends between you and everybody that you know. Or it doesn't. Or it doesn't. You don't extend that love. You won't extend that love. The measure of your is how much weight that bridge between you and another person can hold. The integrity of that. Is it just words? Is it headings in Christianity? 
goodness of God is external goodness in its purest form. The goodness of God can never be external acting because God has no one to impress. There's no social ladder for the Father to climb, so he won't teach you to climb one either. If the product of your Christianity has been that you attain more and greater influence over people, and that you find that your life is more and more about you and your accolades and the acclaim of you staying at this church and serving at this church and loving the saints, it's not wrong for others to encourage you, but Jesus doesn't disciple us into things. Jesus doesn't disciple us into being more about ourselves. He certainly never contributes even a brick to the walls around our own personal kingdoms. So we ought to ask ourselves, if that's become the product of our faith, is it possible that we've taken on a system of religion instead of following in Jesus' footsteps, the way of our master? God the Father acts from his own character, which is the source code for any version of human goodness. So the fruit of the Spirit of God is born. It's born out in those of us who have fully entered into union with Jesus. We have sought the kingdom of God. We have found the kingdom of God. And out of our union with God, we discover that goodness is just one expression of the multifaceted fruit of the Spirit. We find that kind of fruit is itself alive. The love of God is itself alive. Jesus is not handing you a new kind of external law in Matthew 5. And Paul is not describing the requirements to stay a member of your local chapter of the Christianity Club in Galatians 5. Paul's only expression of practicality, the thing that he wraps these verses up with, is that we ought to walk by way of the Spirit's leadership. So if you want something practical to take home with you, maybe it feels to you like I've been waxing eloquent about theoretical ideas that don't really meet the ground of your life. Here's the thing you need to do. And this is bigger than just the goodness of the Spirit. This is true for the fruit of the Spirit spend your time reading books, listening to podcasts, casts meant to supposedly teach you to be loving or teach you to be patient or teach you to be kind or whatever else. Spend your time learning to recognize the Spirit of God. Would you know? Would you know if the Spirit was communicating with you? Would you be able to sense the third person of the Trinity, fully divine, acting in your life or not? Would you know where he's saying to go? Would you know whom he's sending you to? Would you know what it is from Scripture that he says he makes the words of God plain to us, digestible, real. If that's not true for you, you don't need to try harder to be loving and kind and caring and good and self-controlled. You need to get to know the Spirit. And then follow him. He takes a step, he takes a step. He moves to the side, he moves to the side. He takes a break and stands for a while and it feels like a whole lot of other people are passing you up. You stay with the Spirit. You follow the Spirit. see him, if you can sense him, and all you have to do is walk behind him. And what happens then? What kind of life does it look like for us to live if we are truly in step with the Spirit? Well, Paul said, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness. 